Okay. I think our time has come, and so hopefully I'm not startling anybody. If you were wait, looking for a Pastor Ken, I've uh, got second string tonight. Uh, my name is Mark Snowberger. I'm from Detroit Baptist Seminary. Uh, I used to teach with uh, Bill Combs, who's next door. And so uh, Pastor Ken was out of town, and I understand you're sort of working through the Old Testament, is that right? Uh, sort of a flyover and... Uh, uh, and uh, acquaint you with the basic Bible storyline and perhaps some hints along the way for understanding uh, the Old Testament. But that's sort of what I picked up. So what you see in front of you tonight is going to be what we're going to be dealing with. Uh, so after we open in prayer, I'll go ahead and uh, start in on that. Uh, let me ask Jim, would you open us in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We just thank you for this opportunity to learn more about this topic. We thank you for Dr. Snowberger and his willingness to teach tonight. We pray for Pastor Ken and Kim as they're away. We just pray that they have a refreshing time for those who together at this retreat. We pray now for this evening that your blessing will be upon us as we step together. In Jesus' name. Well, as you can see from the sheet you have in front of you, what we're going to be talking about tonight is the application of Old Testament law. And I know you've been dealing a little bit with that already, uh, but hopefully we can add to what you've already uh, uh, gone, uh, gone through, maybe add a little bit of a supplement uh, to uh, to what you've already uh, heard from Pastor Kent. I'll start off by with an introduction here and recognize that the applicability of the Old Testament is tough. I mean, it's hard. Uh, especially the Mosaic Law. That's perhaps some of the hardest. Uh, it's an ongoing point of discussion uh, for for all different traditions uh, within the large sphere of Christianity. Everyone recognizes that the Mosaic Law isn't binding today in exactly the same way that it was binding in the Old Testament. But there is a huge variety of opinion about if there is any applicability and to what degree there is applicability of the Old Testament law to the New Testament Christian. Is the law set aside entirely? Is it set aside in part? If the latter, you know, if it's partially set aside, what parts are set aside and who decides? If the whole thing has been set aside, which is where we're actually going to try and go tonight, how do we avoid the charge of what's sometimes called antinomianism or lawlessness? If we say that the Old Testament law is no longer binding on the Christian, sometimes folks who, who hold to that position are called antinomian. They have no law. They're against the law. And how do we uh, uh, reconcile then this freedom of the law with several scripture statements that... Uh, all scripture, for instance, is profitable. Second Timothy, right, three sixteen. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, that would include the Old Testament law. So, uh, if we've said it, say it's been set aside, then how is it uh, that it's profitable for us if it's not applicable? Well, this lesson at least the goal here, is to provide something of a cursory answer uh, to these questions tonight. Okay, So hopefully we've whet the uh, appetite a little bit. I saw some 
uh, quizzical looks, which is good. Uh, like to, uh, I like to scratch itches, and if we're saying something that that nobody disagrees with at all, or has n- no one has any questions at all, uh, then it's sort of a waste of time. But I'm, I'm happy to see at least uh, the uh, the eyes are engaged here. So good. So we start here by saying here there's a setting aside of the Mosaic Law. And the New Testament is, is replete with references to the fact that the law has been set aside. Now, uh, not so much, we're not so much establishing right here that the whole law has been set aside, but we recognize that in some sense the law has been set aside. I've got a number of texts here that we could uh, look at in detail, uh, but uh, let's just run through a few of these. Romans 7. Verses 4 and 6. You were made to die to the law so that you might be joined to another. We have been released from the law. Okay, so we've been released from the law. We've died to the law, but joined to another. Okay, so we're already starting to get some hints as to how we're going to make a solution to the problem. We've been released from the Mosaic law, but... We have been joined to another. It's not as though we have no law code or no rules that govern the outworking of our life. But it's not the Mosaic law. It's another. Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law. And the word word here is a a critical one. It's the conclusion. It's the conclusion of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law is concluded. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.20, that he is not himself under the law. We're going to come back and revisit this one later on because it's a pretty, pretty important one uh, for our study tonight. But this passage here in 1 Corinthians 9.20, this is a passage, you know, uh, I become all things to all men in order that I might win some. And he he starts with two, two groups of people, those who are under the law and those who are not under the law. And he says to those who are not under the law, I act as though I am not under the law, because I'm not under the law, even though I am not completely outlawed, <laughs> I'm not an outlaw. I can, if I can put it that way. So we're going to have to we're going to have to deal with that one. That that one's a, a pretty important verse that we're going to have to re, uh, come back to. Galatians three, the law was added 430 years after Abraham. It says, until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. Okay, so it actually gives us a, a terminus a quo and ad quem. You know, the, the beginning point and the end point for the law. It started 430 years after the Abrahamic promise, which is to say Mount Sinai, and ends when the promise is completed in Christ. That is, that is the window in which the Mosaic law operated. We find similar, same, same, same chapter. The law was a tutor until Christ. And then, the concluding statement, lest there be any doubt, we're no longer under the tutor. Okay, so a schoolmaster, a tutor. Ephesians 2.15, Christ abolished in his flesh, that is, his death on the cross, the law with all of its commandments and regulations. Colossians 2.14, Christ canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile against us. So we're compounding a great number of these passages that tell us here that the law, the Mosaic law, has been set aside. In principle, I think we can add a few more. Uh, 
First of all, an argument here that the believer just shouldn't want to be under the law. Why not? Well, because the law is condemnatory. There's nothing in it. There's nothing inside the law that gives us some sort of relief uh, from the fact that we can't keep it. That has to be completed by someone else. It's been completed by Jesus Christ. And we're finally relieved from that. We shouldn't want to be under the law. To say that we're still under the law is in some sense to say that what Christ did on the cross was not adequate to solve our problem. Okay? To keep the law is to deny oneself the possibility of salvation and to place oneself under sentence of death because none of us can keep the law. Further, placing oneself under the law is an, as an ongoing rule of life is tantamount to denying that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Add a few more things. Galatians 5.3 says that the law is a unit. Every man who receives circumcision in order to fulfill the law, automatically, it says here, binds himself, is under obligation to keep the whole law. You can't split it up. It's a unit. If you are obliged to keep one part, you're obliged to keep the whole thing. James says something similar. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he is guilty of the whole law. So the transgression in view in here, in fact, is partiality as a violation of the royal law, which is a moral issue. Remember the context here? Of the, uh, the folks to whom James is writing have all sorts of problems with partiality. It should, shouldn't resonate with us with all the racism-charged kind of atmosphere that we have in the, in the, in the states today. You know, there, there's partiality being exercised, and James says, this should not be. And he says, you know, if you, if you violate this piece of the law, you violate the whole thing. So this idea of law as a unit is confirmed also in our observation that all but two of, of the New Testament uses of law is, appears in the singular. Okay? So when you see law in the New Testament, it almost never has reference to specific laws, but rather to the whole law. In fact, it's scarcely ever, there's scarcely ever any reference in the, uh, in the, in the New Testament to the specific laws, only to the law as a unit. So the law, not individual laws, is always in view. And in fact, if you take a look at the Jewish understanding, the Jews understood that there were 613 Old Testament laws, and they regarded them equally. They didn't break them down into, into subdivisions and divisions. These are moral laws, and these aren't moral laws to them. They were all moral laws. It was morally requisite to keep every single one of the laws, uh, not just some of them. Okay. In fact, if you look at uh, Romans 7, 7, where we'd already looked at the passage here in, in 4 and 6, which says you died to the law to be joined to another. We've been released from the law. And then verse 7 says that which we have been released from specifically is the command not to covet. Okay, so I mean, if we're trying to figure out what part of the law has been set aside, Paul tells us in Romans, one of the Ten Commandments, okay, thou shalt not covet. That's been set aside. Now, hear me out here. Don't, I'm not saying that it's okay to covet now. We're, 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 going, we're going to get there. But as for now, for now, we're just saying that according to the scripture, that part of the law has been set aside. 
Uh, Colossians 2.13, same thing. You've been, the law has been set aside, and he says specifically the law that's in view, the, the specific law that's in view is the law of the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments again. Okay? In fact, he makes these uh, remarkable statements here. Let every man be convinced in his own mind about whether you should observe the Sabbath or not. You know, can you imagine Moses saying that? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then Paul comes along and says, <laughs> whatever. If you want to keep the Sabbath, sure. If you don't want to keep the Sabbath, fine. There's no holy days for the Christian in the Christian faith. Well, that's, that, that's something that Moses would never have said. But Paul can, because he says here, We've, the law has been set aside. Okay? Now, I, hopefully I'm, I'm creating more problems than solutions right now. It's, that's the plan. Um, so, so hopefully you're, you're tracking with me and saying, there's, there's got to be some, some, some but or something along here that's coming along. So, yeah. I think of one very significant but in mm-hmm. that, and that is that when Jesus said he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it, mm-hmm. he also said to us, there are two commandments. Right. Only two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well then, the law is about coveting. The law is about, about sure. other things. They do apply to us because we want now that we have a regenerate heart, we want to please God. Right. But but how is it that we go about and order our life? Do we look to the Old Testament and do everything in it? You're right. Yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to suggest that you're anything but right here. You're, you're correct that be having regenerate hearts makes us want to please God and to fulfill his commands, his rules, his laws. But which ones? And that's the question here. Which laws do we have to obey and which ones have been set aside, and how do we know the difference? Okay, so that's 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 the that's the issue we're trying to deal with. Okay, and it's it's a, it's a thorny problem, and hopefully we can come to a satisfactory answer here. Okay, so if we can summarize this first section, Mosaic law is fulfilled in Christ; it's completed in Christ. He came to fulfill the law, and he did. He completed the law; he kept the law perfectly in our place such that we don't have to because we couldn't anyway. Okay? So he fulfilled the law and set it aside for our era. It does not contribute directly, and that word is very important, doesn't contribute directly to our New Testament ethical code. Okay? So uh, if, if, if I'm reading these texts correctly, and we'll find out if we are, we are the believer doesn't need effectively to obey any of the Mosaic law as the Mosaic law. Okay? And that, and that's, again, that's an important qualifier. We're going to see that some of the Mosaic laws have been reduplicated for the present day. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of, and we're, we're going to unpack all of that. And so there are certain laws that we, that were to be obeyed in the Old Testament that are to be obeyed today. But not, we're not, if I can put it this way, we're not obeying the Mosaic law qua Mosaic law as the Mosaic law. Okay, so the dilemma here. Hopefully it's building. Hopefully you've caught it. I've actually seen some consternated looks on the faces, and it's good. So this p- position here, which is what I'll call the standard dispensational position, what I mean by that is dispensationalism, which is the position of, of, of the church here, 
of the pastors, uh, is that uh, is that there that the history basically is broken down into specific epochs, eras. We actually had a whole class on this. Some of you were there last semester. Um, in, and in which God administrates his world in different ways. He doesn't administer uh, the, the whole of his creation the whole throughout the whole of history in exactly the same way. Okay, And so the understanding here is that the way God ordered life for the Israelite community is different than the way he orders life for the New Testament committee. Now, there's going to be some overlap. There's going to be some points of continuity that are there. Uh, but the standard understanding of dispensationalism, which has drawn quite a bit of fire from its opponents because they imagine two things. Perhaps, and perhaps you're hearing me say one of these two things. One, the Christian can do anything he wants without any legal restraint. He can do anything. That's the, first, that's the first concern. Or secondly, that Christians can ignore the Old Testament entirely as something totally irrelevant, which is a position that seems out of step with several passages, one of which uh, you mentioned here. I don't know your name, but uh, one of these passages you mentioned right here, the whole law is summed up in two points, and Christ speaks very positively of it. Okay, So it's, he seems to think pretty highly of the law, Paul does too. He says it's a good thing. So why do we have uh, these nice things being said about the law by Paul, by Christ, if in fact it's been set aside? Okay, All of these speak favorably of the law as having some sort of continuing value for the New Testament believer. So, we've got a dilemma. Now let's see if we can't come up with a solution uh, that is satisfactory, that matches what the scriptures teach. Okay, the answer to this question has seen very many variations over the years, some better than others. I've got four of them listed here before we get to the one that we're going to defend tonight. Traditionally, traditionally, the Reformed community has taken what's sometimes called a regulative position, a regulative position, which means that every Mosaic command is binding unless the New Testament repeals it. Okay, so if you're reading along in the Old Testament and you come across the law, so long as the New Testament doesn't come along and say that no longer applies, it applies. So the New Testament comes along and says circumcision means nothing. Okay, that one doesn't apply because the New Testament says so. It, it says here that that, uh, that Sabbatarianism is not important. Okay, so that one doesn't apply. Okay, so there's, there's a list of, of certain ones that don't apply because the New Testament says so. All the rest apply today. Uh, so that we're going back really four, four or five hundred years here to a, a long-standing debate between the Reformed and the Lutheran tradition. The Lutheran tradition has typically taken uh, what's been called a normative position, a normative position, which if you can, if you're sort of tracking along here, makes sense. They argue that no Mosaic command is binding unless the New Testament specifically restates it. So the New Testament comes along and says, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not commit adultery. And so we know that these are, uh, are, are applicable today. But the ones that are not mentioned, those, those have passed away. Okay? Now hopefully, as you're, if, you're, if your mind's spinning right now, 
you're 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 coming you're coming up with certain one you say neither of these actually works perfectly and and frankly among the reformed and the lutherans that realization is there you know there's there's no one who applies this these principles with absolute consistency okay if the first position is taken <coughs> It, it is taken, then we're obliged to build roof parapets, right? Fences along the edges of our roof, because there's nothing in the New Testament that says we don't have to keep building fences along the edges of our roof. Okay. Uh, we have stone recalcitrant children, okay? because there's nothing in the New Testament that says we shouldn't. Okay, so that command from the Old Testament carries on. We've got to stone our children. We have to offer sacrifices. Uh, uh, these commands are not specifically repealed. Now, if we take the other position, the Lutheran position, then we also have some other problems. We have no basis today for condemning bestiality. Well, that's, that's condemned in the Old Testament. Nothing in the New Testament about that. Abortion, very clearly uh, condemned in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21. Not a word about it in the New Testament. So, I guess that must be okay. Kidnapping, kidnapping in the Old Testament, that's wrong. Kidnapping and, and, and subsequent slavery, that's wrong. Well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about kidnapping or slavery, so that must be okay then. Well, I think we, we look at that and say neither one of these positions really gives a, a consistent plan and pattern for answering the problem. And so we come up with a couple of other positions here that are on your page. Another popular approach is to categorize the Old Testament laws according to certain artificial divisions. I say artificial because these are not divisions that were recognized in the Jewish community. Now, these are things that have been constructed after the fact. That's why I call them artificial. Perhaps you've seen, you've heard of these. There are ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. The ceremonial laws are done, the civil laws are mostly done, and the moral laws continue. That's, that's often uh, what you'll hear. Sometimes uh, there's a, a, a dis division according to apodictic or casuistic laws. I uh, don't want to overburden you with big words tonight, but basically the difference is the thou shalt not laws, those persist, but the if-then laws, those things have been set aside. They're case laws. Okay, so sometimes you'll see uh, something like that. But I say these models cannot, I would argue, explain again consistently why this division is justifiable. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament saint, the old Jewish community, they viewed all those laws as moral laws. It was morally requisite to keep every one of them, not just a few of them. They were all moral laws. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't fathom the idea of certain laws being non-moral for the Old Testament saints they were all moral it was, it, they, they were, there was a, a moral compulsion they had to obey every one of those laws fourth one here fourth option here that's been used is that uh, so some have suggested that the Mosaic law is a primitive model that has been upgraded as believers collectively have evolved or matured so for instance in the Old Testament uh, there's there's little to say about slavery, patriarchy, polygamy. You know, have you ever read that? And you say, you know, why don't they ever say anything about polygamy? You know? 
because uh, you read through the Old Testament, and it's, it's never it's never condemned directly. Uh, bad things happen to people who are polygamous, but there's no statement. Polygamy's wrong, okay? And so, and so some have come along and said, okay, back in the Old Testament, these people were very immature. They they really couldn't handle what we can handle today, who are very mature believers, and so they so things have just sort of evolved. Well, I think that says something about sanctification. I, I don't think they were somehow, you know, the man after God's own heart or the friend of God who lived in the Old Testament were somehow s- substandard believers. Furthermore, I think it says something about the character of God. God immutably makes these laws because his his changeless character is such. That something is always right or it's always wrong. It's not as though things uh, that were okay now become wrong or things that were wrong now become okay. Uh, that's, there is no evolution in God's moral standards. So if none of those options work, what does work? Well, what I'd like to suggest tonight is a position very common among dispensationalists that view the whole Mosaic law as having been set aside in lieu of, in lieu of, a law of liberty. This is described, for instance, in James 1.25. We are to look at ourselves in the lens of the perfect law of liberty, and he goes on to describe it over the course of almost an entire chapter. In the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2 of James, there is a law of liberty. Paul has talks about a new law, another law, which he calls the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. Let's return now to this passage here in Romans 9, which I think you have in front of you. Romans 9, 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking about his evangelistic strategy, if I can put it that way. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. That is, when he was with Jews, he didn't eat ham sandwiches and a number of other things. But let's just put the ham sandwiches there. Uh, you know, yeah, there was there was an event that took place in the book of Acts. Peter was told to arise, kill, and eat these animals. What's Peter say? No, no, no. Can't do that. Those are unclean animals. I can't eat those. And what does God reply? Yeah. What what I have said is holy is holy. <laughs> don't 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 argue with me. You're allowed to eat this meat. However, Paul says, when I'm among Jews who haven't quite gotten this yet, he doesn't take advantage of this liberty that he has. To those under the law, Jews, I became like one under the law, even though, here's the statement, even though I am not under the law. I don't have to obey the law. In order that I might win those under the law. To those not having law, Gentiles, remember the law is given to the, the Jewish community, to them belong the law, the, uh, the prophets and the covenants, all of these belong to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. <coughs> to those not having the law, he says, I became like one not having the law. Okay? I, I threw off the shackles of the Mosaic law when I was among people who were without law. But then he makes a caveat. Although I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. Okay, so he qualifies that. I'm not under the Mosaic law. So when I'm with people who are not under the Mosaic law, I live like a person who's not under the Mosaic law. 
But that's not to say I'm completely lawless. I'm still under the law of God as expressed in the law of Christ for the purpose, then, of winning those who do not have the law. Okay, does that follow? Okay. So Paul, is, by the way, you can interrupt. I am interruptible. Um, so uh, you're, you're welcome to, to chime in when you can, when you want to. Okay. Got a sinking, a sinking podium here. So Paul's here demonstrating that a Christian is not under the Mosaic law. He hastens to add that he's not entirely free to do anything at all. That would be libertinism. It would be wrong. Instead, he's under a set of new laws, many of which resemble the Mosaic laws, but some of which don't. He calls them the law of Christ. Now, while this idea may seem a little bit strange to us, and perhaps it's novel to you, it really shouldn't seem that way, because this is really how civic structure is set up in, in, in the whole world, right? Okay, so, so am I obliged to keep the laws of the United States? Yes. Okay. This wasn't a trick question. Okay. <laughs> yes, you're obliged to keep the laws of the United States, assuming that you're here in the United States. Can I commit murder in the United States? No. Well, <laughs> thank you for the qualification. You're right. But according to the law, you're not supposed to kill people. Okay, there are laws against murder in the United States. So let's just uh, let's <laughs> leave it there, and uh, we'll, 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 your, point is, your point is well made. Okay? There's laws in the United States that says murder is a crime. So, if I leave the United States and go to Canada, do I have to keep the laws of the United States? Yes. No. Canadian? I have to keep Canadian laws. Okay. Go back to the United States. Was that? then you can't go back to the United States. Well, sure you can. Well, there are a few laws I suppose you can't come, uh, break overseas. But in, in general, you can't, you, you are no longer, in fact, people do it all the time. You know, I, I, I used to do some interim preaching across the, in Canada. And there were for certain Sunday nights when you came back, they were searching every single car and they were looking for liquor because you can drink at an earlier age over in Canada. And so people, you know, go over in droves to Canada so they can drink legally between ages 18 and 21, okay? Because when they're in Canada, they only have to obey Canadian laws. They don't have to obey U.S. laws. And so it's a, a legal technicality, and so people do that all the time. Does that mean that when I go over to Canada, I can commit murder? Why not? Because they have a law too. Yes, they have a law too. The same thing I think can be said about the Mosaic law. Are all believers required to keep the Mosaic law so far as what we've said tonight? No. Only the people who lived between 1445 BC and roughly 33 AD when Christ died on the cross and are Jews. Those are the only people who have to obey the Mosaic law. Could Israelite saints in the Old Testament commit murder? No, because there's a law against murder in the Old Testament. Now, we're no longer under that law. Does that mean we can commit murder now? No, because there is another law code, a new law code, the law of Christ. 
that we cannot violate, and that's part of the law of Christ. Here we begin to see, I think, the relationship of the believer to the Mosaic law, and also to explain why there's a lot of overlap between their laws and our laws. It's not so much because one is a continuation of the other per se, but rather that each law code is unique to that era that it governs. Some of the laws are transcendent. They apply to every single age equally. Others aren't. Others, some laws apply only to the Mosaic age. Some laws apply only to the present age. You know, think of the ordinances of the church. These are things that are required in this age, but they weren't required in the old age. Note especially the language here in 1 John 2, 7 and 8. I think you have that in front of you as well. John says, and if you're, if you, if you, if you're not, if we're not tracking along here, these verses can seem hopelessly confusing. Beloved, he says, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. So how can a law be new and old at the same time? What's he he trying to say? Well, there's a law that's been in place since day one. But there's a new affirmation of this law that is is coming to you in the the New Testament uh, that reaffirms and reasserts uh, what has been true from the beginning. So every law code that has ever governed the people of God comes from the self-same, immutable God, and they're issued in a non-capricious manner. Okay, these rules have reasons. There's always a reason for the laws that God gives. Now, occasionally we have trouble figuring out what the reason is. Most of the time not. We, We usually are apprised of why the laws are there. And for that reason, I think it's possible to say there's profit in every law in every testament. It tells us something about God. Some of them don't apply directly to us, but there's still profit in reading them. So how can we agree to the value of these laws for the day in a consistent way to avoid some of the long-standing quarrels that have plagued the New Testament church? And, and you probably you've probably encountered some, right? Okay. Must believers tithe? That's a big question. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of ink spilled on that question. That's an Old Testament law. Do we have to do the same thing? Well, believers disagree. Must believers meet regularly on Sunday? Well, it's an Old Testament command. Believers today disagree. What role can women have in leadership? Well, it's carefully spelled out in the Old Testament. So when we come to the New Testament, do those things still apply? Well, there's disagreement. Is homosexuality a cultural or moral issue? Well, the Old Testament, very plain. Old Testament law, does the, does the Old Testament inform contemporary dieting? You ever see one of those books or one of those websites with a biblical diet? What's biblical about it? Well, it has something to do with the Old Testament. <laughs> well, is that, is that a legitimate diet? You know, people are trying to get some sort of moral high ground. This is a better diet than your diet because it's a biblical diet. Really? Do Old Testament inform us? Old Testament laws conform us to, to tell us about contemporary family size. 
You hear that argument, right? Well, in the Old Testament it says that the children are a heritage from the Lord and and blessed is he who has his quiver full of them. And so therefore, in the New Testament, God wants every man and woman who get married to have as many children as is physically possible. Does that follow? Do Old Testament laws give any details about clothing styles? I've heard that argument made. Do Old Testament laws require a certain kind of education for children today? Right? You hear that, right? You know, back in the Old Testament, they didn't send their kids to public schools or to parochial schools. They homeschooled them. And so that's the way we should be doing it today. I mean, these are arguments that you hear, and they're basing it on what happened in the Old Testament. Are they right or are they wrong? And how do you decide? I mean, that's 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 really what we're trying to do here. On truth, there's no simple rubric that can be applied neatly to every single Old Testament law that we find. Okay, so I, 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 it's perhaps what you're looking for that you know that little gold nugget that I'm going to tell you that's going to give give a complete answer to every single question in the whole Old Testament. I'm not going to give it to you, sorry. But what I'd like to give you tonight, if I can, is something a series of questions, a grid that you can work your way through to discover whether that Old Testament command is something that you need to apply today or or what you're supposed to do with it. So that's that's the goal for the rest of the night, is try and figure out some sort of a grid, some series of questions that we can ask that hopefully gives a better set of responses than the four we said were inadequate above. Okay, so that's that's the plan. So the criteria, the questions. First, is the principle part of the natural created order? There seems to be something of a priority placed on commands that are given at creation. These are the ground rules for the perpetuation of the creation. They seem to extend to all the all dispensations, every era. Some of these are specific commands, fill the earth. Okay, we're to keep the earth full. I don't know that that's, a, that's not an individual command that every individual is required to fill the earth, but mankind corporately and collectively are to keep the population up. Subdue the earth. Well, that's what we do every day. That's what we go to work to do. In some sense, that's what we're doing. Uh, whether we're talking horticulture or agriculture or, or geology or, or whatever we're doing, uh, chances are that somehow we're, some, we're, we're subduing the earth in some way when we go to work. Eat the plants. Okay? Still eat the plants. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't like eating the plants, but you can eat the plants. And then cultivate the earth, which I think is something of a work uh, mandate. My two sons were very disappointed to discover that they, that they command to work and cultivate the earth happened before the fall, not as a result of the fall. And this is something that God wants them to do. It's not a curse that's been placed upon them. It's a glory. The glory of man is their work. Uh, I, they, I think they're learning it pretty well. But uh, there was a time they were a little disappointed to discover that. Okay. Other things in the natural created order are assumptions that God expected us to pick up. For instance, female headship violates the created order. Now, maybe some people here just don't like to hear that, but that's what the text that these texts in the New Testament say. First Corinthians eleven, three to ten. 
I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of every Christ is God, and goes on about the head coverings and etc., 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 because man did not come from a woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, I'll let you explore that one on your own. <laughs> the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Okay, so, so it says right here that you should have figured out from the created order that there's supposed to be a hierarchy of authority within the life of the church. Now, I, you know, I, I read Genesis, I might not have picked that up, but Paul says you should have. And so I take his word for it. Yeah. Um, as a woman, I would like to just, you know, say that my take on that is that if if more men would understand their role as leader, I think less women would resist it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I just spilled coffee all over myself. And I think you, you, you make an excellent point. I mean, that's really the effect of the curse, right? Men are poor leaders, and women become poor followers. And that's the curse. Both ways. So your point is well your, your point is well taken. God had it right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Homosexuality, secondly here is biologically abnormal. And I think in this particular crowd, I think we're getting nods of agreement from everybody. I'd like to think they are. But that's what Romans 1 says. There there were people going along, hating God, hostile to God, exchanging God for a lie, doing naturally evil things. And then, God turns them over to a reprobate mind. Such that they now do not just normal sinful things, you know, things that make sense. You know, adultery, for instance, or or fornication. Those make sense. Now they're actually doing abnormal things, things against nature. Well, what what Paul seems to be saying, perhaps indirectly here, is that we ought to be able to figure out from the biological arrangement and through the uh, commands that were given in Genesis 1 and 2, and homosexuality doesn't do what families are supposed to do. Okay. Uh, and we're supposed to pick that up. Divorce and adultery. There's the, there's the statements here that uh, there's divorce there's a, the, uh, and, and, and such that is permitted by Moses. But this is not the way it was from the beginning. You should have figured that out. Is, is, is what is what Christ says. You should have understood from the beginning that that's, that that divorce and remarriage is is something wrong. There's something wrong with 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 a marriage that has to end. That doesn't mean that everyone who is involved in a divorce is is personally done something wrong. But something happened wrong, the way it wasn't supposed to happen, according to Genesis one and two, and that is why. Divorce happened. You should have figured that out, uh, Christ says. So there's certain principles that are part of the natural created order, and the conclusion here is that these are universal principles. They are not re- they're not restricted to Mosaic law or the Christian era. These are broad standing principles uh, that uh, that are universal in scope. Second question. 
is the principle commanded or practiced in multiple dispensations and specifically ours? Okay, so uh, part of the question we're asking here is, you know, I, I see a law in the Old Testament. Is it restricted to there? Is it practiced there and some other era of the of the uh, of the of the world order, if we can put it that way? Uh, and 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 the answer that we get, I think, can inform our uh, our answer. Now, uh, there's there's not just a it's not a strict binary question here, yes or no. And so I've got actually several uh, uh, options here on this question. Some New Testament principles are taken word from word from Revelation and previous dispensations with literal no change at all. Nine of the Ten Commandments reiterated in the New Testament, all except for the Sabbath command. We'll come back to that one. The summing up of our ethical standard, loving God and neighbor, is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so that, that, that hasn't changed. So the conclusion here, this is the easiest one, we can assume that these principles and the attendant practices are eternal principles that find iteration in multiple dispensations. These are things that are binding on every age. But not all of them are that simple. Some Old Testament practices appear in our dispensation, but in altered form. So for instance, the priesthood, as practiced in the Old Testament, is gone. But there is a kind of priesthood, right? Christ is the priest. He, the high priesthood is permanently in the person of Christ. And he is performing all of the high priestly functions, and yet we are called priests for each other. Okay? We, we, we represent God to others, and we represent others to God. It's called prayer, right? And discipleship. From Noah forward, there's a requirement of submission to civil government, but the New Testament gives a whole slate of new uh, and, 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 and new specifics to this to replace uh, the obsolete principles during the theocracy. The world was governed differently under Moses than it is today. In fact, it, that's one of the huge differences between that, that dispensation and ours is that basically in the Old Testament you had you had the civil functions and the religious functions all wrapped up with each other. Now we come to the New Testament and there's a command given by Jesus Christ. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Maybe it should go down for him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And he creates a separation of church and state. What's well, different? Things are, things are done differently today than were done under the law. So principles persist but in altered form. So we can assume that there are eternal principles in view, but the practical implementation of those principles may vary. The largest category, and the most complex one, are commands that appear in other dispensations, but not ours. Okay? They're, in, they're under Moses, perhaps under Abraham, perhaps even under Adam, but you don't find anything about them in the New Testament. What do we do with those? That's the hardest one. And I actually have four identifiable categories here uh, as we close up this section here. Number one, there are commands and practices that are fulfilled in Christ that have no direct application today. So animal sacrifices through a Levitical priest as a necessary mediation of a right relationship to God are abrogated once for all with the permanent priesthood of Christ. 
Okay? Here's something that Christ has ended. Sabbath observance, I think, falls under this category as well. Because the Sabbath is described in the Old Testament as an anticipation of the believer's rest. Hebrews says that we have entered into that rest with the coming of Christ. In reference to the animal sacrifices, mm-hmm. aren't they supposed to be practiced again during the millennium? Yes, millennium? coming. Next point. Excellent question, and I'm glad you're tracking. Second, then, commands and practices demonstrably related to what I call dispensational structures have no direct application. So, if we look at the Old Testament and say, okay, this is part of how that arrangement worked, and our arrangement doesn't work that way anymore, then those things have been set aside. And here's exactly, right up here, is the, is the one that we're, we're trying to say. Animal sacrifices had more than one function. Okay, We tend to reduce the function of animal sacrifices to some sort of anticipation of the work of Christ. Okay, and so, and so once Christ completes it, then there's no more need for sacrifices, which we've said, that function is gone. But then we find in the millennium that there's the sacrifices come back. Now, this is a real head-scratcher. Um, but as we look at the Old Testament, we find that, the, that, the, that the, uh, the, the sacrifices had more than one function. It was not just a, a forward pointer to Christ. But even if it was, I'd have a solution for that. I could say we've got backward pointers to Christ too, right? We have them every month, right? The backward pointer to Christ. Okay, so ultimately the idea of sacrifice is not completely off the table. But I think there's actually more important functions of the, uh, of the, uh, of the sacrifices. The sacrifices were what bound the community together. Um, you ever notice in the in the Old Testament that there aren't any prisons? You ever notice that? No prisons. Why not? Well, because when someone sinned, there was always some sort of system, a payment system, a sacrifice system, some sort of arrangement whereby that person could be made right with this community, except for a few of them for which there was no sacrifice for sin. Okay. It doesn't mean that salvation is, is impossible to these people. But there is no sacrifice within the Levitical code that can handle, say, murder. And what happened to those people? They were put to death. Okay, They were killed because there was no sacrifice for those kinds of sins. Okay, So the function of the sacrifices then was a, is a communitarian thing. It was a way to keep... How do you pay your debt to society today? Well... You commit a crime, you go to prison. You pay a fine. In the Old Testament community, it was sometimes you know, make reparations, uh, sacrifice, you know, a little animal for a little sin, a big animal for a big sin. But once it was all said and done, you were right with the community. With the community, and what happened? You had the peace offering, which was shared with the priest, which was which, which was a statement that. Our community is now at peace. Okay? And so it was shared. Now, if that's the case, there's no reason why that same kind of system couldn't work 
in another era, which is the millennium. Okay, so those sacrifices there aren't there. In fact, they never were there to take away sin. Hebrews says as much, right? The sacrifice, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, can never take away sins in an ultimate sense. So why did they do it? Because there was a temporal sense in which it did make them right with the community, and so that that pattern can resume in the uh, in the. Uh, uh, in, in the uh, in the coming age. So that's why I split it up here. There are certain functions of sacrifice that are dead and gone and will never continue. There are other functions of sacrifice that can be uh, uh, reinstated reasonably. Okay, so does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, good. Circumcision is an identifying sign of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant people, but not of the church people. Okay. The entry right into the Israelite community for a man was, on the eighth day, circumcision. What's the entry right into the church? Salvation and baptism. Okay, So baptism is the entry right into the church. I'm not saying that they're the same thing. They're, they're the same in this, that they are the entry right into the respective communities. Okay. Now this entry right is only for believers. This entry right was for only baby men. Okay. So it's so they're different. At the same time, they do share something in common. They're both entry rights into the community. And so that's why Paul can say circumcision is nothing. Well, in this community, circumcision is nothing. In this community, <laughs> you know, Moses, your kids aren't circumcised. Okay, I'm going to have to kill you. Please don't. <laughs> different, completely different response because of the function of circumcision. Tithing a means of funding the political and cultic structures. When I say cultic, don't don't be alarmed here. Or religious, maybe I should have used. Political or religious structures of national Israel, but is not mentioned in the church. So we ask, well, why not? And why wasn't it mentioned in the church? Well, because tithing in the Old Testament was not just, you know, to pay the pastor and to do evangelism. And that wasn't what tithing was for. In fact, it was not for that at all. The tithing, which actually was probably more like 23% because there were two annual tithes and one triennial tithe, so about 23.3%, went to fund the entirety of the Israelite state, including the, uh, the running of the temple, including the running of the country, the funding of an army as necessary, okay? uh, the, the social welfare in order to take care of the poor, all of this was paid for through the tithes. The New Testament got a different arrangement. Okay, we have rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. Okay, so we, we recognize here that the government has a reasonable expectation that they can collect taxes in order to do the civic things that governments are supposed to do, and the church ought to expect to be able to get some money from you as well in order to fund the religious structures and commissions of the New Testament church. Okay. But they're not the same. Okay. In fact, in the, old, in, in the New Testament it says uh, there's no particular compulsion that causes you to give a certain amount. Doesn't mean you don't have to give. I mean, that's that's what the uh, you know the immature believer might say. Okay, I don't have to tithe. Woo! I won't give anything. No, and that's not the point at all. 
In fact, I think uh, uh, your pastor does as good a job as any in sort of letting people know what really needs to be brought in in order to uh, to fund the ministries of the church, and uh, hopefully you've got something of an idea of the of the of the hopes uh, that uh, the church would have from each of you as you try to forward do your part in forwarding the Great Commission. Third, commands and practices that further explain clear creation motifs and otherwise moral principles should probably be regarded as equally transdispensational or or universal, even though they're not reiterated in the present dispensation. Let me give you probably an example better than the... That was a hard sentence. Incest, bestiality. There's really not a whole lot about them in the New Testament. Incest is talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, but only sort of in, in, a, in a passing way. Okay, so... Is incest wrong, or is bestiality wrong? Well, the New Testament doesn't say as much, but if you're understanding the principles that undergird the, the, the laws in the Old Testament, then you have to come to the conclusion, well, that's, that's also wrong today, because the same reasons are here today as were back then. It doesn't have anything to do specifically with Israel. Premarital sex appears in a context with adultery as alike violations of the covenant character of legitimate copulation established in Genesis 2. You ought to be able to figure that one out. Abortion, which is clearly described as wrong in Exodus chapter 21, but not in the New Testament. I think hopefully you're, you're seeing that the principle that undergirds Exodus 21 and 22 has not changed. Life is sacred. You can't take it away. Human life is sacred. You can't take it away. Nothing changed when Christ died on the cross to make life any less sacred. Okay, so if abortion was wrong in the Old Testament, it's wrong to do. Finally, number four. Commands demonstrably tied to transient cultural practices have no direct application, but, 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 the underlying moral principle persists. Okay, so if you come across the law in the Old Testament that is no doubt culture-bound, okay, that doesn't apply to you today, but figure out why it was there, because it tells you something about the nature and character of God. For instance, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. That's a weird one, okay? Not that I've ever been tempted to do it, but you know, don't boil (coughs) boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Okay, I won't, but why was it there? Well, most most would suggest that there was some sort of pagan practice uh, that uh, was was related to some to the uh, uh, to the uh, reproduction uh, of of animals and such uh, that was was nasty to God, you know, and something that was 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 odious to God and shouldn't be done. Now, you know, if you want to go out and boil a kid in its mother's milk tonight. <laughs> Go ahead, have at it. I don't think that that law applies today. Not that you would. But the principle is still there. Don't engage in the pagan practices of those around you. That principle persists. There's a rule against muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, I don't have any ox, and my ox don't, and, and they don't tread out grain. 
So is that one, ah, I can just dismiss that one because we don't have ox anymore. Well, there's still a principle there, right? Why was it there? A, a, a need for fair compensation? You know, don't muzzle. If he's doing the work, he should get the benefit of doing the work. Well, that's a principle that is applied in the New Testament, right? If some a, work, a worker is worthy of his hire, okay, you should pay your workers. Paul makes this injunction for women to cover their heads in 1 Corinthians 11. It's laced with cultural symbolism that doesn't exist anymore. The principle of male headship, which undergirds that practice, remains, which is, you know, the point we were making earlier. In fact, you should figure that out from creation, he says there in 1 Corinthians 11. And finally, the requirement of roof parapets. Well, we don't have to build roof parapets anymore. The reason for the roof parapets, though, persists. Why did they have them? Well, because they spent time on their roof. They flat roofs, and they, they spent much of their time on their roofs. And so if they've got little kids running around on the roof, you ought to put up a fence to make sure the little kids don't fall off the edge of the roof. Okay. So I don't have... I, my, my kids don't run around on my roof, typically. Occasionally. <laughs> but, but they don't typically run around on my roof. At the same time, I should have, you know, stair rails on, on, on the staircases. I ought to do all kinds of things that the, uh, that the uh, county requires of, of me when I, when I do any building project in order to make the house safe. Okay. The principle persists. Okay. So, conclusion then, in such situations, the persistent applicability of these laws rests squarely on the interpreter's discover of the reason for each law and the appropriateness of those reasons <laughs> to the present day. Now, I didn't leave myself any time to do the uh, case studies, and I apologize for that. Uh, you can go ahead and fill those out if you really want to. I, could, uh, I can leave the answer keys if you want to. But uh, those are some case studies we're going to do as we have time, and we didn't. So any sort of summary questions that you might have uh, about that tonight? Did we get past the dilemma? Is the consternation gone? Okay. 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 We will, uh, well, I won't see you next week, but uh, you will be seen next week here in this room. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, sure, thank, thank you. Thank you very much.